You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon. So I am uh, Jim Carafano. I oversee all the Homeland Security, Foreign Policy, National Security, Defense, Research of the Heritage Foundation. If you forget that, don't worry about it because I'm going to be up back up here like five times. Um, so my, my first job is to introduce the introducer, which is awesome because I get to introduce a really great American, um, Stephen Hadley. Stephen Hadley is really one of the finest human beings in Washington, D.C. He No, really. I mean, he has been a friend. He has been a mentor. He has done so much for this country in and out of government. Um, he uh, most importantly served on the National Security Council uh, for President Bush, including serving as his National Security Advisor. He served uh, in the Defense Department as it was Assistant Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and a long and distinguished legal career. All of it, not surprisingly, revolving around issues of national security and keeping the country free, safe, and prosperous. Um, and maybe in, in his greatest yeoman service, he, uh, he serves as the head of the board of the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is a great organization that's co-sponsoring the event with us today. And it's done, he has done such amazing, plays such an amazing leadership role in that uh, institution, which, which also does some incredible things every day to help um, secure America's place in the world. So it's a great honor to introduce Steve and have him introduce our guest speaker. So over to you, sir. That's what you call a two-kind introduction, but I thank you for it anyway. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. I think this is going to be a terrific program. I'm really interested to hear from the panel because it's going to talk about Mahmoudiyah. Why Mahmoudiyah? We are going to, we, the United States, our allies, and most of all the Iraqis, are going to push ISIS out of Mosul. No doubt about it. We are going to win the war. The question is going to be, can we secure the peace? And securing the peace is going to be, require us to address the sectarian tensions that have always been there but have been exacerbated dramatically by the ISIS occupation. And if we cannot address those sectarian tensions and avoid a cycle of rec retribution, we will not secure the peace. And that's where Mahmoudia comes in because it is an example of the military working with the U.S. Institute of Peace to address those sectarian uh, challenges and to bring a peace among the tribes that reduced the risk to our troops, reduced the need for troops, and is held for 10 years. So if we're going to solve the problem of securing the peace after we defeat ISIS in Mosul, we're going to have to learn and apply the lessons of Mahmoudi, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I have the honor of introducing Adam Kinzinger, who is the U.S. Representative for Illinois' 16th Congressional District. Uh, he is a great patriot, and we're delighted that you've taken the time to be with us today. He was first elected to Congress in 2010. I want to give you a little bit of a background on him. It's, an, it's a fascinating American story. He was born in 1978 in Kankakee, Illinois, the son of Betty Joe, an elementary school teacher, and Russ Kinzinger, a CEO of faith-based organizations. He was raised in Bloomington, Illinois, 
He graduated from Normal Community West High School in 1996 and earned a bachelor's degree from Illinois State University in 2000. In 1998, while still in school, he ran for election as a county board member of the McLean County Board in Illinois. He won, and he remained on the board until 2003. That year, he joined the United States Air Force. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in November of 2003 and later awarded his pilot wings. He was initially a KC-135 Stratotanker pilot and flew missions in South America, Guam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He later switched to flying RC-26 surveillance aircraft and was stationed in Iraq twice. He holds the current rank of major in the Air National Guard. In January 2009, Representative Kinziger met Republican U.S. Congressman Mike Pence, Mark Kirk, and Peter Roskam, and he decided on a run for the Congress. In February 2nd of 2010, he won the five-candidate Republican primary with 64% of the vote, and he went on to win the general election 57% to 43%. His committee assignments are important. He's on the Energy and Commerce Committee, on the Foreign Affairs Committee, but what I like best is this story. In 2006, the Wisconsin Red Cross named Kinziger Hero of the Year for wrestling a knife-wielding man to the ground and disarming him. The man had cut the throat of a woman on a street in downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Recalling the event in an interview, Representative Kinziger said, the whole time it was, to me, kind of a done deal that I was going to get stabbed in the process, but I knew this wasn't something I could wake up to every day with that memory that I watched that woman die. The woman survived, and for this act, Kinziger has received the United States Air Force Airman's Medal and the National Guard's Valley Forge Cross for Heroism. Ladies and gentlemen, Congressman Adam Kinziger. What a good turnout. Hey, everybody, thank you for being here. And, uh, and Mr. Hadley, it's, I never thought, you know, a few years ago as I decided to get into Congress that I'd ever be introduced by you. So thank you, and it's my honor. Thank you for your great service to your country, too. And we have members here from the 10th Mountain Division. Thank you for your service to your country. And I know a lot of you uh, have served in, in roles in the military and in the institutions of state, et cetera. Thank you for doing that, too. Uh, you know, we're in a discussion right now as we're seeing ISIS as a, as a territory, as a state, basically in the final death throes of its existence. And, and I think a lot of the concern is, you know, what happens afterwards? And I think, unfortunately, there's probably a lot of folks who don't pay a lot of attention to this that think that once ISIS is defeated, once they're out of Raqqa, once they're out of Mosul, that that'll be the end. And we can bring everybody home and live a great, wonderful life and, and never have to think about that kind of thing again. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. And I wanna talk a little bit about what comes post-ISIS and what we're gonna look at and, and the strategies, I think, to defeat this long-term issue of both instability in the Middle East, but I think just as importantly, we talk about radicalism and next generations of those that are gonna be radicalized and how do we, how do we come to actually win this war once and for all. But I think, 
to start, we have to talk in a more broader way. And that is, what is the mission of the United States of America? Now, that's kind of a weird question. And I think it's something that's very unique to us if you look at our makeup and how we are and how we exist, how we came to be. But I think if there, there's something unique about us in that if you go up to an American and you say, what is the mission of the United States of America? I think they'd react to that question very differently than you'd see people in other countries react to that question. If you go to France, for instance, or you go to uh, any other country, and I think if you ask, what's the mission of your country? Uh, no harm to them, nothing negative to them, but I think the question would be, well, that's a tough one. I don't know. I guess the mission of my nation is to provide roads and bridges and uh, secure me and that kind of stuff, and that's a logical answer. But I think when you look at how the United States came to be, and I, I'm going to get spiritual for a moment, so excuse me on this, but I think it's important, which is I think when God was kind of coming up with this idea of earth, I don't pretend to actually know the mind of God, but I know that this is kind of my theory. When he came up with this idea of earth and he looked down and he saw the challenges of people fighting each other and strong men and terrorists and dictatorships that would come along and and famines and, and all this kind of human suffering, he realized that he needed a country to model exactly how we can govern ourselves as a people, how we can rely on you know, doing the business of what needs to be done to survive without having to rely on a brutal dictator like we've seen so many in the past. And so I think as he kind of created this idea of America, he brought people from all over the world together in this nation that initially was very isolationalist, that you know, brought people that were disparate groups from other countries, different races, different religions, different ethnicities. And frankly, if you were an outsider and you came down like from an alien base and you saw the world's makeup, and I described to you all these different nations in the United States, you would probably assume that the United States would be the country that was mired in civil war and civil conflict because you have so many different kinds of people that don't get along. But yet it was exactly that group of folks you know, whether it was in the founding of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or getting through a massive civil war or finally finding our feet in World War I and ultimately in World War II. It's exactly that group of folks coming together and getting it right, learning how to work through our differences, despite the difficulties we're having today, by the way, but learning how to go through our difficulties uh, that can be exactly what we need to be. So the question is, what is our role in the world? What is America's mission statement? before we look at how to defeat ISIS and how to bring stability to the Middle East. I think America's mission statement's pretty simple. I think it's to be an example of self-governance to billions of people that don't have what we have but are desperate for it, that are desperate for a taste of what we have. So you think about through the Cold War. You think about what is it that actually brought down the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. It wasn't um, arguably, there was some role that America's military played. We drained the resources of the Soviet Union. Ultimately, what brought down the Iron Curtain was ideas. It was the second, third, and fourth generations of people that lived behind it that saw a better way of life, that saw something that they aspired or achieved to that ultimately led to the destruction of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Iron Curtain. So what lessons can we apply to that today? So you look at that and say, well, that was a one-off. The Soviet Union was interesting. We have our own issues with Russia today. Uh, what does that have to do with terrorism? And I think it has everything to do with terrorism. I think there's a role for the United States military and for our allied militaries in defeating terrorism. I think it's essential. I think when you have a group like ISIS that decides that it's going to build a caliphate and it's going to convince people 
In some cases, folks may be in their parents' basement in the United States or in Europe. In some cases, people in groups that feel disaffected. And it's going to convince them that this is the foretold caliphate in the, in the Quran, and they're gaining territory, and they're being successful, and they're gaining riches and money and everything else. It is really easy to recruit people that can believe that because they're seeing the result. The result, in 2014, we saw, frankly, uh, the president of the United States at the time and the infrastructure of the government that didn't see the real threat in ISIS. I remember, and I don't say this to brag, but I was among the very first members of Congress to say we need to bomb them when they moved in to Iraq, and we thought they were just called al-Qaeda at that point. But we let them grow. We let them establish territory. And by the time we almost saw Erbil fall is when we finally jumped in and realized this was a real problem. But what's happened since? So the reason the U.S. military plays a very important role in this is because as we've liberated territory from ISIS, now ISIS, the state versus the thought, as we liberate territory from the state of ISIS, it counters the narrative that this is in fact the foretold caliphate. And so you have people in their parents' basement or you have the folks in disaffected societies that look at this and say, wait, maybe this isn't what was foretold because if this was in fact what was prophesied, they probably would not be getting their backside kicked in by the military. So that's important for countering the narrative. Totally liberating territory from ISIS and defeating that group is an essential part in the war on terror. But I think we have to understand that that's not the end of this fight. You all have heard the discussion about what comes next. Is it ISIS-2? Is it Al-Qaeda-3? Is it Boko Haram-2.5? The fact is the military itself cannot defeat the mindset of radicalism. And I think those that advocate for it, that say we need to bring down the institution of the State Department, bring down groups that don't do military and plus up the military alone, is failing to understand the fact that a bomb is way more expensive than investment in conflict mitigation. For instance, a group like the U.S. Institute of Peace, which you're going to hear about some of the success stories of USIP. You can't quantify that. But I think we have to understand that it's not just about winning today's war on terror. It's about winning the next generational war on terror. I say that to be a little controversial because, like, what are you going to wage war on the next generation? But I think it's the seven, eight, nine, and 10-year-olds today that are in refugee camps, partially as a result of ISIS, largely as a result of a really evil man named Bashar al-Assad that has no problem killing and gassing his own people, backed by the Russians, by the way, uh, and backed by Iran. I think it's that generation of eight, nine, and 10-year-olds in refugee camps that are either going to be the people that save Islam from this strain, that defeat radicalism and terror, or they will be the next fighters. So as we look at what role is that, the question is, can the military handle the seven, eight, nine-year-olds? We may have to someday. I pray not. But what can be done today is investment in different groups, investment in soft power, bringing together coalitions, which the United States has an amazing capability to do that no other nation has, a unique capability. Bringing those folks together to give hope and opportunity to those kids to teach them how to read and write, to teach them how to learn about a world that's bigger than just what's in front of them at the moment to give them optimism, to show them America as an example of self-governance, as an example of how you can live, and give them something to strive for. 
That's how you deny the next ISIS 2.0, the next Al-Qaeda 3, the next Boko Haram. That's how you deny them their recruits. You take away that pessimism that exists in the population. That's where the essential part that comes into all of this is, which is, look, in State Department, I have heard some people complain, State Department's filled with a bunch of lefties. There's a lot of lefties in the State Department, right? The military tends to vote more right-wing. I believe that God, when he creates people, he creates basically both sides of every spectrum because none of us are perfect, and when you bring it all together, you kind of get the complete answer. There's a role for people in defeating ISIS that are focused on things like conflict mitigation, giving people hope and opportunity, giving them an opportunity to raise crops and drive a vehicle and, and, uh, and, and have hope. And I think there's a role for bringing the hammer down when a group exists that wants to kill us. But all these have to work in parity. And I think it's essential that America's leaders, whether it's a president, a member of Congress, anybody else, make the point to the American people that this is not a war that's going to end anytime soon. That this is a generational fight on the military and on the soft power front. That as the old saying goes, you may not be interested in war, but war may be interested in you. We have no choice but to fight this both militarily and through soft power, through hope and opportunity. So when you look at the future of Iraq and an Iraq free of the influence of Iran, it's essential that we bring all parties together, mitigate conflict, figure out how to work in peace and how to, work, how to live together so that the answer to any disagreement isn't to bring a gun and kill families and kill children. We have to make sure that I think America has an enduring role and an enduring interest in a long-term troop presence in Iraq and other places. Think about it. We still have troops in Kosovo. We still have troops we know in South Korea, Japan, everywhere else. That's going to be an essential part to bringing this together. Because America's believed, because they've been told by the past administration, who's actually said these words, they believe that we are war fatigued. They believe that we're tired, we're exhausted. And I'd argue that we may be a little tired. We're tired of watching this stuff on the news. But if you want to see war fatigue, look at what happened after World War II. A whole generation of Americans mobilized and activated and defeated two evil empires. That's the time when America was war fatigued. That's the time when it would have been totally understandable for the president to say, we're bringing everybody home because we've got to build bridges here now. We're not building them in Germany and Japan. But that's when America doubled down and said in this post-World War II order, we're going to write the rules. And we're not going to write the rules because we're an arrogant empire. We're going to write the rules because it's either us or somebody else that doesn't have the values we have. And we have the unique capability to do this. So as we look at America's role in the world, this is a part of it. But I think on a broader perspective, America has an opportunity to give hope, to give ideas, to give, to give something to live for to the people that we're going to find ourselves facing, in other words. To bring it back to, again, my kind of Christian faith on this, I think God gave us unique resources, unique ability, unique military capability. I mean, we have tons of oil. We just, like, discovered 10 years ago we have more oil than we ever knew. He did that not so that we can have nice clothes and we can sit in an air-conditioned room and we can be comfortable and we can bring everybody home and build really awesome bridges. I think building a nice bridge is great. I'm in. But we have it because we are to be the example to the 5 billion people out there that need just a taste of what we have. 
I want to leave you with two really quick stories. One is the uniqueness of America and then why that's important. I remember right when I got elected, I'm giving a, probably six months into my first term, I'm giving a purple heart to a guy that uh, had been injured in Iraq, had been injured twice, actually was injured, sent to Germany, recovered, went back to Iraq, was injured, sent home. He was a sniper. And uh, I went up to talk to him and we had a brief, he has two little girls, by the way, and a wife. And I start having a conversation with him and I, I just before, and I said, do you ever miss it? Like, do you miss Iraq? I said, because I miss it every day, not like in a, I yearn for the war, but like you just kind of miss the camaraderie and everything that existed. And he goes, Congressman, he goes, you know, interestingly, he said, I actually called my contact in the Army and I told him, they can have all my retirement, all my pension, they can have my disability, I'll give them everything if they would just let me go back to Iraq for one more year. If they would just let me go back for one more year. He said that for two reasons. Number one, because he felt like despite two injuries, two Purple Hearts, a family that's looking at him saying, how's dad going to provide? Despite all that, he feels like he hasn't done enough for his country. And he misses his brothers and sisters over there. We were still there at the time. That's unique to us. I, I would argue you're not going to find that in the Russian military. You're not going to find that in really any other military. The other story I want to share, which is I think the importance of why America needs to lead this exam by example. I was in Kenya. And I went to, you know, in this big SUV kind of thing. I was there with Representative Emmer from Minnesota. And we were driving to this village, and we went to this village, and it was a discussion about how the United States does a good job of giving people hope and opportunity, and it was USAID. And they take us to this milk co-op. And I get out, and they're trying to explain milk co-ops. I know what co-ops are. I'm from Illinois. We have a ton of them. And basically, people that have excess milk bring it to the co-op, get paid money. That co-op then distributes milk to people that don't have cows, right? So then they took us to a farm. And the farm, the possessions, the total possessions owned by this family were probably the size of this third of the room, total. They had two cows. That was their only asset. I've been through survival training in the Air Force, and I think even with that training, I've forgotten 90% of it anyway, but I think even with that training, I couldn't have survived on what this family did. But they talked about how they milked the cows and never provided enough, and we sent a young man from the University of Illinois that showed up and taught him how to treat these cows, how to care for them, how to feed them. And they went from making X amount of milk a day to two times that amount. And they were so excited. And I noticed an interesting thing that happened. I started out with like eight people standing around wondering why this black SUV pulled up to their village to all of a sudden the word spread that there was somebody from the United States of America there. And all of a sudden there's 50 to 100 people standing around clamoring. They don't know who I am, but they know what I represent. And I represent to them hope and opportunity because they went from barely being able to afford their life to making basically $2 a day and living like kings. Now I gotta tell you, in those communities, in that community, you are not gonna be able to recruit somebody to fight the United States of America because they look at us and say, I'm not going to fight people that gave us hope. That's why this fight's important. The military is essential. Soft power is essential. And we can do this. We just have to be ready for the long fight and the long haul. And we have to remember why God put this great nation on the earth in the first place. With that, I just want to say, I get to go vote now, but what a great opportunity to be in front of you. I thank you all for being here. I know you're going to have a great discussion to follow. And God bless you all. Thank you.
I want, I want to thank the congressman. Hey, this is a great crowd. This is actually more people than showed up at my wedding, so I'm really. <laughs> but um, for you guys, we have a couple extra seats down here. If somebody wants to come sit down in front, we've got a couple of seats over there, so please um, you know, help yourself. Before, before we go to the, the panel, uh, I would like to do two things. One, I'd like to say Judy Yaffe's in the house. Those of you who don't know, Judy Yaffe, who's many years served at the National Defense University, is one of the guiding lights and, and worked on this region, the Middle East, um, forever. And she's trained generations of people who work on this region, and she really is a national treasure. And it's just great to see you. So thanks for being here. And uh, then I'd like to introduce um, uh, our co-sponsor for the event and have them talk a bit about some of the work that they're doing in the region and how that fits in with what the panel discussion is going to be. So. Um, Please join me in welcoming to the uh, podium Nancy Limburg. Nancy, since 2015, has been the president of the U.S. Institute of Peace. I've, I've worked with the U.S. Institute of Peace since I first came to Washington decades ago. And, we, and uh, I, I can absolutely tell you that I think they've never been more effective. They've never had more effective programs they've, and they've, uh, than they've had in the last few years. And, and a lot of that really is um, to Nancy's um, leadership. Before doing that, uh, and, and uh, she had good training because she spent um, some very good, hot, tough years in the USAID in lots of part of the world and, and in lots of um, um, trying times, including in being in the middle of the Arab Spring and the Ebola response and other events. And uh, before that, she was the president of Mercy Corps, which is for, uh, I guess, 14 years or so, which is one of the great uh, NGOs that, that does work abroad. And, uh, and she continues to serve not just as the president of USIP, but, but in a broad range of leadership positions and boards in essence. So it's just great to have you here, and please join us at the podium. Good afternoon. Another too kind introduction. Uh, thank you, Jim. It's great to be here with everyone this afternoon. We are so uh, delighted to be able to partner with Heritage on this event and on a lot of other events. Uh, so, Jim, thank you so much for the good partnership. Um, U.S. Institute of Peace was actually founded in 1984 by members of Congress, many of whom had come back from World War II or the Korean War, and were really convinced that we needed uh, deeper capacities in the U.S. to look at what are the practical ways to prevent, to, to lessen, and to resolve violent conflict. And so they founded U.S. Institute of Peace as a nonpartisan, uh, independent national institute. And we work around the world in conflict zones with local partners, helping them to acquire the knowledge, the skills, and the ability uh, to prevent and resolve violent conflict themselves. Um, Iraq has been one of our priority countries. We have been on the ground continuously since 2003. And these days, uh, our team is focused on working in uh, communities that have, have been liberated from ISIL and brokering peace accords that enable people to go home, uh, that enable the tribes to agree on a peaceful way forward rather than descending into additional cycles of conflict. And this is really based on work that was done 10 years ago. And I want to just set the stage a little bit for uh, the conversation that, uh, that you're about to have. Because 10 years ago, um, we received a call from members of the 10th Mountain Division. Um, and we have with us here today several of those members, uh, the 2nd Brigade Combat Team of the 10th Mountain Division under the command of Colonel Michael Kershaw, uh, Deputy Commander Lieutenant Colonel John Leganelli, 
and Command Sergeant uh, Major Anthony Mahoney. And the three of them uh, were sent out uh, to assume responsibility alongside their Iraqi army counterparts to secure a very volatile part of Iraq that was known as the Triangle of Death. Um, Mahmoudia is a rural district of about a half a million people an hour's drive south of Baghdad. At the time of their arrival, it was filled with intertribal violence, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda attacks. Um, they paid a very heavy price during their mission there. Uh, they suffered the loss of many, many of their colleagues and comrades over the course of 11 months of intensive operations. And it was during that time that they realized uh, they needed some additional sets of tools. As we heard from Congressman Kinzinger, they needed some complements to the hard power that they were bringing to the fight. And Colonel Kershaw reached out to the USIP uh, Baghdad office and asked for partnership. That partnership resulted in an intensive set of negotiations where USIP brought Iraqi partners uh, and worked with the 10th Mountain guys to map, to analyze, and conduct a series of negotiations, often very contentious, a lot of disagreements. These guys can tell you more about it. But after four months, it resulted in an accord. It resulted in an agreement among the Sh Shia and Sunni tribes to forge a peaceful way forward, to, to, to stop the fighting, and it resulted in an, in an accord that uh, put their communities on a path to reconciliation and recovery. We're very honored to have Colonel Kershaw with us here today as a part of the panel, and the U.S. Institute of Peace is enormously grateful to have this opportunity to honor the, honor the work and the sacrifice of these very brave soldiers and their contributions to building peace, um, even in some of the most violent of circumstances. As I said, Colonel Kershaw is joined by Colonel John Leganelli and Major, uh, Sergeant Major Anthony Mahoney, and the three of them, because of their work, because of their inspiration and their vision, they are responsible for saving the lives of many Americans and countless Iraqis. So I ask you to join me for a moment in honoring their service and their vision. Please stand up. Thank you for joining us here today, and with that, I turn it over to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jim Carfano. So let me ask our panelists to come up to the stage. And uh, uh, let me, I'm gonna introduce our panel real quick on like a lightning round. Then I'm gonna ask each of them to start, uh, talk for about 10 minutes, and I guess we'll start with Mike and work our way down. Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, and then when they're done, we will go to Q&A. And so when we go to Q&A, if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand and I will recognize you. And if you would wait for the microphone so everybody can hear your question. And then if you just state your name and affiliation, that would be awesome. And, uh, and we'll take as many questions as, as um, time allows. So uh, very quickly, starting uh, with um, Colonel Mike Crenshaw, who currently is, is coaching and mentoring the next gen generation of Army warriors um, in the Army Leadership Training Program at Fort Polk, Louisiana. But before that, he was a 30-year 
Army veteran in the U.S. Uh, infantry, um, has a, a, a long list of decorations, a bachelor's from uh, West Point, which just means he's okay. I mean, Technical school. Yeah. And uh, master's in art from the Naval Postgraduate School. We'll forgive him for that. Um, but, the, but he also went to the Naval War College, which is not too shabby. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Sarang Hama Saeed is a director of Middle East programs uh, at uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace. And what's great about this panel is literally we have every single perspective that you could look at this from. Because this is forward looking and where do we go from here. So Mike's on the ground. And, and literally whether it's government, non-governmental, or how the media or academics look at this, we have all those perspectives covered. And Mr. Hama Saeed covers about 12 of them. Um, <laughs> before... <laughs> Before coming to uh, USIP, has a long, uh, long um, uh, career in the government sector, non-government sector, private sector. He's had media experience, and most interestingly, he, he at one point was the deputy director general at the Council of Ministers of the Kurdish Regional Government in Iraq from 2008 to 2009, a period of time in which things were less than than quiet. And uh, finally, Jim Phillips. Jim Phillips um, is the uh, the longest-standing research analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Um, he is the only analyst I know who doesn't actually study Middle East policy, he just remembers it. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, started, he started with a mimeograph machine and he has worked his way through several versions of technology since then. Um, I, you know, Jim and I have been together for 15 years and I have learned, you know, he is, if, if you go to his office you would understand why this, why this guy is literally kind of the, the, that, that machine and that thing that knows everything. Um, and uh, and, and uh, Jim has been following and working and talking to the people of the region for many, many years, and, and his perspective is, I can tell you, has significantly influenced uh, both the planning and preparation and, and, uh, and the incoming folks in the administration. So it's a number of great perspectives. Mike, we'll start with you, and then we'll just go down the row. Yes, sir, and thank you for that introduction, and thank you to everyone here for attending today and for the, uh, sir, Mr. Hadley, ma'am, wherever you move to, Nancy, th thanks for having us. I'll tell you this, uh, Sergeant Major Mahoney and uh, Colonel Langanelli and I uh, all retired now, uh, but we are humbled that uh, this organization and uh, the Institute in particular has seen fit to review our actions in uh, South Baghdad during the time periods that we've discussed. I will try to put that in perspective for you. I've tried to do a survey of the room. You know, nothing ruins a good war story like what, Emily? An eyewitness. Mm. <laughs> I got at least one, Emily. She's hiding from me over there. So uh, I will try to stay out of the realm of uh, retired Colonel War stories and try to help us. But I, but I don't think I can adequately describe what I learned personally as a commander without giving you at least some degree of perspective on the situation we faced in Makhmadiya uh, when we arrived in August of uh, 2006. I was the commander of 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division. Command Sergeant Major Honey was my brigade command sergeant major. For those of you without military experience, he was the senior enlisted soldier within the brigade. And as such, like me, uh, he had been previous deployed, uh, both as a brigade sergeant major and like I had been in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, Colonel Langanelli is my primary deputy for, for particularly these kind of efforts. Uh, was a former aviation squadron commander, so an accomplished soldier in his own right, uh, who actually joined our team over there while we were in the middle of the deployment. We were very fortunate to get John. As such, our brigade, a brigade combat team at the time, constituted about 3,300 U.S. soldiers, give or take, um, here and there, and specifics to the organization. Uh, we also were partnered with an Iraqi brigade, the 4th Brigade 
of the 6th Iraqi Army Division. At the time uh, that we arrived in South Baghdad, it was at a similar level of strength, although it grew rapidly uh, during our tour there. Mahmoudiyah Kadah, for those of you familiar with Baghdad province, spare me, the, spare me for a second, but Baghdad is both a province and a city. So for those of you, I'm, and it, sir, you forgot to mention because it's, it's in the Status of Forces Agreement that I am from Texas, and I'm a professional Texan by nature, but for those of you familiar with the great cities of the state of Texas, you have the capital city, which is Austin, and the, the county that surrounds it is known as Travis County. And while those are two different jurisdictions, in fact, they, they overlap greatly, for all great cities have these. So Baghdad is the same way. Most of what we think of Baghdad is the city, the ur urban Belladias. And I think there are nine, there were nine at the time. And then there were about six, what we kind of euphemistically referred to as counties, and they called Kadaz, that within the province were, were pr primarily rural jurisdictions. Makhmadiyah Kadah was one of the largest at about a half a million people, 450,000, 80% Sunni Shia to the south of the city, uh, but literally within eyesight of the city of Baghdad. So all the tribal relationships that we worked on, as you find in the United States, city people, rural people, there, there, were, there were connections to the city. When we moved in behind our predecessors, 2nd Brigade of the 101st, at that time they had suffered I believe 52 killed in action, about 300 wounded in action. Uh, Mahmoudiyah Kadah was considered the most violent portion of the Baghdad province. Uh, now, for all you who have served over there elsewhere, this is, I'm not trying to act like this was any worse, because as all of us knows, if you've been in a bad situation in the military, it doesn't matter who thinks they're in the worst spot. When people are shooting at you, you are in the worst spot. But for, for purposes of this discussion, it was certainly considered the most violent uh, sec, uh, portion of the Baghdad province. Uh, we, we, we arrived uh, behind a, a regular Army U.S. Brigade, 2nd Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division, and moved into sector. The, the term that, that Nancy used, uh, the triangle of death, which for those of you who have served in Iraq, is a term that's used euphemistically about many bad places in Iraq, was actually formally within Mahmoudiyah Kadah, we defined as an area bordered by the Euphrates River, the Yusufia Canal, and a route that we frequently traveled that we were constantly attacked on. The attack rate at the time we assumed the sector was 115 attacks a, a week on U.S. forces. Generally, one U.S. soldier was being killed every week in South Baghdad, and you can do the math. The Iraqi forces we were working with were suffering similar casualties. You can start to extrapolate that to civilian casualties, uh, to wounded in action, uh, et cetera. So when we occupied that sector, that was the going casualty rate, but there was a section of our sector that was essentially unoccupied by U.S. forces. And this is the real Shakaria triangle that, that we referred to specifically as an area, and it was generally believed, and my instructions from hires my, office, my general officer leadership believed that that was a sanctuary for al-Qaeda and insurgent attacks into Baghdad. So not only was the sector itself violent, but it was seen as a contributor to the violence in the city itself. And most of you know more about Iraq uh, than I do, certainly the people at this table do, but so our mission there was twofold. One, to prevent attacks coming from out of our sector into Baghdad, 
and two, to, to solve the, the violent sector just within the province. So we moved uh, initially to occupy key points. And this, this portion of our uh, tour over there, which we went over there on a one-year tour, and we were extended during the, the what's euphemistically known as the surge to 15 months. But for the first probably three to six months, we literally engaged in combat actions on a daily basis and suffered losses commiserate with, it, with that. Uh, we probably gained a certain um, degree of possession, in other words, U.S. physical presence within this triangle uh, that allowed us to extend our influence throughout these areas. And the, the violence level dropped somewhat, but obviously be, by being in these areas, we became much more engaged with tribal leaders, uh, the various people who were probably, uh, if not actively aiding the insurgency, at least had knowledge of what the insurgents were doing. But certainly once we were able to maintain a physical presence within this triangle area, which really resulted in, and we had cooperation of uh, both all services, special operation units to do this, we had eliminated largely what we thought was the, what we kind of defined as the terrorist threat. In other words, that threat which was exportable from South Baghdad into the city, whether Al-Qaeda-based, foreign fighter-based, or by indigenous forces. And we then begin to focus on the resident insurgent groups uh, in the area. And that fight probably went another three to six months. And as we begin to gain the upper hand and our Iraqi partnered brigade began to gain in capability, we then saw this opportunity. Now, it, it's kind of uncomfortable for somebody like me to be sitting at this table describing a lot of this, because I'm just going to have Emily stand up. I'm going to do this to you, Emily. Please stand up. Uh, Emily Lemke was a lieutenant uh, in the brigade. And I tell you, it was people that were her age, a lot, uh, the age of a lot of you sitting out here in the audience today, the graduate students, um, that were actually dealing with these tribal leaders at a very low level every day for the conduct of our campaign. And I was, I was getting these reports, but certainly by about a nine to 10 month time frame, there was enough of these kind of things coming to me as the brigade commander that I began to recognize that there's potentially something here that's of value outside of our, our area of operation. And that's when, and uh, John Langanelli was the guy really who led me to the U.S. Institute for Peace, but we were looking for other mechanisms to work with. Uh, because no matter how capable we were and how competent we were in the elements of, I think the congressman and Mr. Carafano have both talked about the elements of hard power, we're not schooled on the other elements of soft power. Uh, we, we may be schooled on them, but, but frankly, uh, we negotiate um, through a front, front sight post. Our language is the language of 556, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. And so we needed these skill sets. Uh, the second thing that the, the Institute of Peace brought us, and it was a problem set I was given as soon as I came to my, my predecessor told me this. I met with a group of sheikhs of the Gartani tribe. I sat in a meeting with these three sheikhs, and I don't know anything about these people. They're all coming up with their, their stuff, and as we left, my predecessor, Colonel Todd Ebel, 2nd Brigade of the 101st, said, he goes, Mike, you realize the real strings of the Gartani tribe are being pulled from Jordan. Sheikh Turkey Talal fled the country after the invasion was in Jordan. And I termed this, and I was talking to Nancy earlier, you know, it was a North Korean situation for me. 
For as all-powerful and all-knowing as I may have claimed to be within the 330 square miles of South Baghdad with people like Emily, John, and Tony supporting me, there was nothing I could do about somebody who was in another country who was pulling the strings. And it was Rusty's initiative when we presented him. Here, here's a problem. USIP had the ability to reach out. And in the Rusty's document that he's published generates that. And that ability to reach out across country borders bought a capability simply that was not resonant in at least the U.S. military forces that I was responsible for in South Baghdad in this period. And again, we're of tremendous value added as we attempted to solve this problem. I'll wrap it up just by, uh, I hate to use casualty figures. They can be somewhat morbid, but they are frankly a currency in, uh, in my line of work, uh, good or bad. Uh, the 2nd Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division from October of 05 to September of 06 suffered 55 killed in action, three soldiers who were missing, captured, tortured, and executed, uh, 300 duck wounded in action. From September, of from September of 2006 until November of 2007, my brigade, 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division, suffered 53 killed in action, later to be 54. We had two soldiers captured, executed, later recovered 14 months later. Our predecessor Iraqi unit suffered commiserate casualties. I have their figures here. I won't share them with you. Third Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division who followed us suffered one killed in action and 34 wounded. And I remember it distinctly because Tony and Mahoney and I were actually sitting on ground in Baghdad. It was a female lieutenant who was killed from the Rakasans the day before we actually left the country. So after we left the country, you know, so... 55 killed, 54 killed, one. And then, so in the currency in which uh, I devoted 34 years of my life, that was a, a currency. And I'm not saying it's the only metric of success, and I'm not trying to be morbid. But in that three, four-year period, whatever that encompasses, uh, those were the results that the U.S. Institute of Peace helped us and others, a lot of other U.S. soldiers, uh, achieve. So thanks. Um, Thanks for that uh, introduction, and hopefully that met the bill. Over to you. Well, <clears throat> thank you so much. Um, it's a great story of uh, that uh, my colleague Rusty Barber here worked uh, with you in partnership, Colonel, and uh, it's a pleasure to build on that uh, solid foundation that uh, I work uh, with the rest of the team at USIP. And what I will be uh, talking about today, I said, I'd like to bring this conversation forward, and I think um, yeah, the, the previous speakers, uh, Congressman Kinzinger, uh, uh, Mr. Hadley, and Ms. Lindbergh, set the stage on the big picture that, okay, we have made the military progress uh, today, and uh, then what? Uh, now, now in Iraq, we have challenges. And I try to portray uh, two pictures for you. I would like to, as I uh, talk about some issues, to follow uh, on two tracks. One. Uh, one that things go forward in terms of how do we consolidate the military gains and, and what are the, the things that have been uh, done there. And another path, and coming in the, from a conflict perspective, uh, where could reversal happen? What are the ingredients that could lead to reversal? I'm not trying to make a prediction that reversal will happen or progress will be made. I'm sitting, uh, analyzing this picture as, a, as an organization working uh, on conflict and trying to be helpful. These are the two tracks uh, that I'll try to uh, shape my um, uh, comments on. And, um, I uh, was in Iraq uh, with a number of my uh, colleagues um, uh, uh, end of uh, April and uh, 
uh, until towards mid-May. So this conversation will be informed by our program since 2003 uh, on the ground, uh, but also uh, a number of uh, recent meetings with the top leadership in Iraq and, uh, and, and the uh, tribal leaders uh, on the ground, civil society organizations. Uh, in Iraq, I think the, the sense of progress that uh, land is being recaptured is, is an important one. It's felt uh, the, the military fight uh, and the progress had a unifying effect uh, on the Iraqi people um, uh, coming together, fighting a common enemy. Uh, the Iraqi army, after the, uh, the, the, the meltdown in Mosul, uh, is basically uh, uh, there's a sense of pride in the army, in the Iraqi people, that uh, it is now uh, liberating territory. It is protecting uh, the Iraqi people, including religious and ethnic minorities. So there is that positive um, uh, 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 vibe in the country. About 1.8 million people have returned home. So you have that positive picture. And there are uh, efforts on the economic line, on the reconstruction line. So you can uh, uh, project on that. And I can um, go into details if there was interest. But on the other uh, uh, track is that, okay, um, reverse. Under what circumstances uh, could reverse be possible? Is the uh, military f end of the military fight um, is the end of the, the war? Um, uh, I am afraid not. And I'm not trying to uh, uh, see uh, the picture in a negative way. I'll tell you a mix of good stories, positive stories, uh, helpful stories, but also the realities on the ground. Um, in terms of uh, the potential for reversal, if we look at, uh, at the landscape, we continue to see ISIS, uh, even though they have lost most of the ground, they continue to stage attacks uh, on the communities in liberated territories and elsewhere in the world. So ISIS continues to be a threat in, in some form. Uh, in Iraq, uh, if we look at the um, uh, community level, um, th they have left uh, significant damage behind. They controlled uh, a little bit more than one-third of the country, and rebuilding that um, uh, is, a pr is an issue, but what they have left behind is also an, uh, uh, something important to pay attention to. I, uh, I like uh, imagery, and uh, when I look at uh, areas that ISIS um, have uh, controlled, uh, I see uh, basically what they have done is uh, um, uh, destroying uh, uh, a mosaic of colorful uh, window or uh, uh, glass shattered into, into pieces. And by shattering, the, it's not only at the city level or at the tribal level or at the village level, but in many cases at the family level. And so, so that's the task, and that's the place where we're trying to rebuild from, bringing this back together. So the task is hand at hand is a, is, a, is a complex one, and it's a big one. And that's, that's one challenge that we are, uh, we are presented with. Uh, the second is uh, the layers of division and sources of conflict that are uh, in the society. Uh, and I'll name uh, some, and I'll make a go for a deep dive uh, on, on one of them. Uh, as we uh, look at the, uh, the Iraq landscape, one of the concerns that are starting to emerge is that uh, will the unifying effect uh, of the fighting against ISIS will go away and uh, those forces uh, will start to um, uh, fight each other. Uh, one of the concerns there, and we had, had, we've had some flashpoints, is uh, confrontation between the, uh, the, the popular mobilization forces, as some people may uh, call Shia militias, and the, the Kurdish Peshmerga. And specific flashpoints are Jalola, Saadi, and Diyala. Uh, you have uh, Sinjar, for example, in, in uh, 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 Nineveh province, 
and also uh, areas like Tuskhurmatu, uh, again, south of Kirkuk in, in the Salahadin province. So that's one line of uh, threat. Um, second is that the, now the popular mobilization forces are in many uh, Sunni areas. Uh, so now the, some of the Sunnis feel, okay, say thank you, you've helped us to liberate, maybe it's time for you to go. And there is a concern that uh, there may be a Sunni revolt coming uh, down, down, down the road. So that's a uh, second line of conflict. A third line of conflict is uh, between uh, the, um, the community and, and then the state. And as the, the reconstruction happens, Iraq doesn't have the resources, is that, okay, the people may uh, pour uh, their anger on the government and that could lead to tension and violence. And we have seen that uh, in 2011 and uh, uh, 2013. Uh, the other uh, line of uh, uh, intervention is a regional one. I mean, we say that Iraq is a proxy, um, uh, is a, an area where proxy regional fight happens, and as the regional dimension gets more complicated, uh, we could see uh, a line of division there and, and some conflict. Uh, the other, uh, the one that I want to go for um, a, a deep dive on is actually the communal uh, violence. That's uh, uh, the, the, uh, and this is where I would like to contrast and compare a little bit with the Mahmoudiyah uh, experience. Um, and uh, the, in 2000, uh, June 2014, um, ISIS uh, took when they took Tikrit, they also um, uh, they uh, they committed a massacre as called the the Spiker massacre, in which they killed 1,700. Uh, Shia cadets. Um, they were in civilian uniforms, they were cold, uh, killed in cold blood, and the, 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 the massacre was recorded and it was shown on, uh, online. It showed members of local tribes uh, uh, implicated in that, uh, in that massacre. And um, the, the effects, as, uh, as the colonel spoke about, is that what you have in that spot and the, the effect of it beyond that place is that these 1,700 cadets came from some 20 tribes of the south and the 20 Shia tribes, uh, and they were seeking justice. And this was at a time where the institutions of the state could not provide protection, they could not provide justice, and uh, this was where the popular mobilization forces, they were asking, they say, okay, come join us, uh, and became a recruiting tool. They say, we'll go and revenge uh, for, for the massacre. This was yet another wound in the sectarian division uh, of Iraq, and uh, that is something uh, that was about to get out of control. Not No Iraqi security forces, not the efforts of the coalition, could have prevented this from spiring out of control had we started on the path of re uh, uh, tribal revenge, and that was a high possibility. So what we have done uh, in, in that context, we've, uh, uh, we used Iraqi uh, uh, facilitators, a network of Iraqi facilitators, uh, Iraqi mediators that USIP trained, uh, the, sim the, the, the ones that, uh, uh, some of the ones that have been uh, instrumental in Mahmoudia, uh, and this time, they were in the lead. Uh, and this time, compared to Mahmoudia, the investment we've made in them, where they were the, the, the lead who made the contacts and designed the dialogue process um, with technical support from USIP. And we designed a dialogue process, uh, brought the tribes together, and uh, basically it led, they, they reached an agreement. Difficult conversations, very complex, but the key uh, components of the agreements were that they dropped collective uh, accusation against the Sunnis. They collect, dropped collective accusations against the tribes. And the, the, on the Sunni side, uh, by they I mean the Shia, who are accusing the Sunnis of being the killers of their sons. Uh, the, on the Sunni side, uh, they 
they, they uh, committed themselves to disavow uh, membership of any of the tribesmen who have participated in the massacre, committed to uh, working with a, with a judicial uh, process of the government apply, upholding rule of law, and not letting that moment on both sides, they recognized they, they didn't want to let that moment to be a divisive moment where politics will exploit the situation. In this dialogue process, we brought in, the, uh, and again, it was a top-down, bottom-up um, uh, approach where you had the tribes from the bottom, uh, in a, in a, in a bottom-up approach, and you had from the top, uh, you had the office of the prime minister represented through the office of National Reconciliation Committee. We brought in the office of uh, Grant Ayatollah al-Sistani, and they, they participated, and the deal was reached, and tensions were reduced, and I think we saved lives. This process saved lives. Building on that, uh, Tikrit was liberated, uh, and again, this is another distinction between uh, the experience in Tikrit and in Mahmoudiyya. Uh, this time, we started the dialogue process uh, four months before Tikrit uh, was liberated. Uh, so when the moment came, we were ready. We had things on the ground in action uh, to play a, a, preventative, uh, a preventative role. Uh, that, we leveraged that to facilitate the return of uh, uh, internally displaced people uh, to, the, uh, to, to the city. About um, uh, 400 families were the first batch of people that were returned. And then uh, they, uh, by now, according to data from IOM, 380,000 people have returned to the province of Salah Hadin, and about 170,000 have returned to the city of Tikrit. This story uh, may sound like a unique, uh, a, a unique problem, and uh, uh, it, it, it's true that it, in, in, in one sense that there, you may not have many incidents where you had this number of people killed in one attack. Uh, but as one tribal sheikh uh, told me uh, a few weeks ago in, in, in south of, uh, was from south of Mosul and said, if you had not seen another spiker massacre uh, or a big mass atrocity, that doesn't mean uh, a mass atrocity does not happen on a mini scale every day. He told, he told us about uh, how in his uh, uh, area of uh, about a dozen villages, how 300 people uh, either were killed or kidnapped in the past year. Uh, so that's a story of a 12 villages. That number, uh, estimates put it at about 200,000 people who may be unable to go home um, anytime, uh, anytime soon. And uh, 200,000 who, who would have label of uh, ISIS in some form, either accused of being an ISIS fighter, an ISIS sympathizer, an ISIS enabler. And it's unclear how many of those people are actually uh, uh, have played a role uh, in, 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 the in the conflict. So the, the congressman spoke about how the eight years old, nine year old children uh, who, have, have been in, uh, who are at risk of becoming the future recruit, if as, as a Iraqi society pushes that number of people uh, to the corner and camps are being set up now called ISIS family camps, uh, we are basically making a group of, uh, of Iraqis vulnerable to uh, ISIS, to uh, ISIS 2.0, whatever that will be called, and we are um, uh, we, we have a, a, a process of elimination uh, of um, economic opportunity, political participation. That's one source of danger. The the tribal revenge that uh, the sows so seeds of division again a lessons uh, compared to Mahmoudia. This is a lesson that uh, ISIS learned from Al Qaeda that uh, igniting a sectarian uh, fighting between the Sunnis and the Shia is not enough. Uh, the awakening pushed them out. Uh, so how do we, uh, the, 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 that's why they took the division to within Sunni communities. Again, a tribe, what, to give you an example, a, a tribal sheikh said how, uh, tell, telling me again from Nineveh, how 
uh, one uh, family were, were expelled from a village because the, the, the head of the family was uncle to an ISIS fighter. So a family was, uh, was, was pushed out. As USIP, and uh, if I uh, conclude um, uh, with that, is that as USIP, we are focused on basically that line of that kind of dialogue to be ahead of the problem and prevent violence. Uh, we have, in addition to Tikrit, we have a number of initiatives that we are working on in, 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 in Hawija, south of Kirkuk, another hotbed uh, of violence uh, in the fight against, uh, against ISIS, where they have reached a deal, again, pre-return. Pre and what's in, uh, important about this, as the Iraqi society has opened up, uh, they have uh, embarked on uh, reforming tribal law. One of the things that is unprecedented uh, in Iraq for the tribes to open their law and they wanted to prevent violence. And they went the extra step, again, unprecedented for Iraq. They, one of the, the, the points of agreement, in addition to uh, dropping collective punishment and not going for uh, revenge and uh, upholding the law, they committed themselves to exclude women and children from any tribal deal. And this is, for those who follow the politics of Iraq and the tribes, this is a big deal. Women are, are given as compensation uh, to, to other tribes. And you see examples of that today in Basra. Uh, but in this area that has been damaged, uh, positive stories come out. There are Iraqis that are uh, willing to roll their sleeves and, uh, and uh, try to fix this problem. And that's what we are trying to, uh, to provide, an element of process to convene and deal, uh, solve their problems uh, on their own. Thank you. Thank you. So before I turn the, the panel over to Jim, this reminds me of a lecture I, I, I just got um, about a different theater from an Indian official who looked at me and, and was saying, says, you Americans, he says, he says, don't be you know, downheartened by people who come to you and say, it's in Afghanistan, that, these, that there's such a thing as an intractable, unwinnable conflict, that there are zones that are simply ungovernable. He says, that simply takes agency away from humans and the notion that there are some humans which simply will never have peace and prosperity. He goes, that's not true. That's not the history of Afghanistan. Um, and, I, and I think that, that lesson holds for Iraq as well. The notion of somebody would come in and say, this is unwinnable, that a future for Iraq is impossible. Well, you know, certainly at the tactical level, we just had two, I think, very good illustrative examples, both from kind of the security side, where even in some of the most violent and, and, and unruable parts that, that re-achieving a, a degree of peace and stability um, with the, the right kind of security uh, uh, measures and forces is impossible. And when you pair that with the measures uh, that Saran talked about, you know, in terms of preventative and reconstitution and resettlement, that you can actually see this where, where, this, where you can do real progress. I mean, these are not made up stories. These are things that really happened on the ground. So the challenge, though, in Iraq, um, Jim, is, is, you know, for every one of these little tactical areas, which in and of themselves is a patchwork in which the right people with the right kind of solutions could actually um, uh, create a, a future and a possibility for people, that is wrapped in this kind of larger strategic context of the challenges facing Iraq as a country and the challenges chase the region. So why don't you just kind of walk us through some of those and then we'll go to questions. Okay, uh, before the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, the Heritage Foundation warned that winning the peace in post-war Iraq would be difficult, more difficult than uh, winning the, uh, the war against Saddam Hussein's regime. That is to say, the political task of stabilizing a post-war government uh, would be uh, m much more difficult uh, 
uh, a political task than the military task of defeating Saddam's army on the battlefield. And I think to a large degree this situation holds uh, in the war against the Islamic State or ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, whatever you want to call it today. You know, as difficult as the fighting was been over more than eight months in Mosul, uh, stabilizing the area around Mosul and keeping uh, the Islamic State from returning is going to require a massive humanitarian aid effort and reconstruction program, the building of an effective, transparent, and responsive local government, and the development of a more inclusive, long-term political framework for Iraq as a whole uh, that offers convincing proof to I Iraqi Sunni Arabs, uh, which is ISIS's target audience, that they have a, a better future uh, in uh, throwing in with the Baghdad government uh, than in uh, remaining uh, under the shadow of this Islamist totalitarian uh, uh, ideology. Uh, this is going to be extremely challenging given the roiling ethnic and sectarian tensions in Iraq, uh, uh, problems with corruption and dysfunctional uh, government, uh, the lack of trust and cross-cutting foreign agendas of some of Iraq's neighbors, particularly Iran and possibly in the future Turkey. Uh, Washington must work closely with Baghdad and other allies to prepare a post-liberation political framework uh, for Mosul. Uh, it should have been pushing for this uh, last year. I'm not sure that it has been done. I hope behind the scenes uh, people in, in this city, in Baghdad, and Erbil, and elsewhere are thinking about this. Uh, but the Islamic State is a very resilient enemy. Uh, that has deep roots in the region. It can draw on uh, networks uh, that go back before al-Qaeda in Iraq, and it also uh, has drawn on the military and intelligence networks of uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, Ba'athist uh, infrastructure uh, that has brought military and, uh, and logistical uh, support to uh, ISIS. And once it loses control of territory, uh, it's going to revert to its former status as an underground terrorist organization. It has extensive experience doing that. Uh, it's going to try to reestablish itself and its old strongholds through intimidation, terrorism, assassination of local officials, uh, and guerrilla warfare against Iraqi security and police forces. Uh, and as the congressman noted, I think one of the important fronts uh, is going to be in the camps for refugees or internally displaced persons. Uh, historically, refugee camps have uh, provided fertile reservoir or potential recruits for uh, extremist movements. We saw that uh, with the, uh, the diaspora of Palestinian refugee camps uh, uh, erecting uh, some very radical Palestinian organizations. The Taliban emerged from Afghan refugee camps with the tremendous uh, assistance from Pakistani ISI intelligence, and that's uh, something that, as the congressman mentioned, we, we got to uh, watch in Iraq, not only for uh, preventing uh, ISIS from taking root in these camps, but also protecting the people in these camps from possible uh, secta sectarian or tribal vengeance from surrounding populations. And in fact, ISIS is going to try to uh, trigger the, uh, and provoke those kind of retaliations to build support in the camps. Uh, so uh, one of the, the 
an initial uh, urgent task is going to be taking care of these people, uh, resettling them, hopefully uh, in or at least near some of their, their uh, old homes uh, where possible. I think the Iraqi government should try to be uh, employing as many local people as possible to rebuild infrastructure and, and reconstruct homes. Uh, uh, but it's, it's very important uh, uh, that the, the Iraqi government does a better job of this near Mosul than it did uh, near Fallujah. Uh, that is generally perceived to have been a, a failure. Uh, and it's important to remember that uh, the rise of ISIS was a symptom and not a cause of broader government failures. And in order to keep uh, ISIS from rising again, uh, the, the Iraqi government must uh, undertake internal reforms and uh, reach out uh, to, in a more inclusive fashion, not only to Sunni Arabs, uh, but to uh, Kurds, uh, uh, Christians, uh, Turkmen, and, and other uh, minorities throughout Iraq. Uh, nature may abhor a vacuum, but uh, revolutionaries and terrorists love them. Uh, many Sunni Arabs were pushed into the arms of ISIS, which they saw as a lesser evil because they perceived uh, a distant government in Baghdad as uh, uh, making them suffer under malign neglect, uh, disenfranchisement, and repression. Uh, and however terrible life was under ISIS, local Sunni Arabs are going to need to see a credible and acceptable alternative coming from Baghdad before they will fully and openly uh, cooperate with Iraqi security forces. Uh, I think Mosul is an important test case on this. If Baghdad fails to address uh, sectarian divisions and legitimate political grievances, then ISIS will uh, reemerge again or something even worse. So uh, I realize the U.S. doesn't have the same uh, agency within Iraq as we did during the colonel's experience in uh, Mahmoudiyah, and that we can only uh, try to use our influence uh, in Baghdad, in Nurbil, and, and other capitals to try to uh, help put Iraq together again. Uh, but in that spirit, I would just offer five quick, uh, and I'll telescope these uh, um, recommendations. And first, uh, I think, is to restrict the role of Shiite militias in the predominantly Sunni areas. We've heard about the population uh, the popular mobilization forces, and, and these are not all Shiites, some are Sunni, and some of the Shiite ones, uh, especially the ones loyal to uh, Ayatollah Sistani, are uh, loyal to the state, but there are uh, uh, numerous militias that, uh, whose primary allegiance is to Iran, and they're carrying out Iran's agenda, not only in Iraq, but in uh, Syria. Uh, where at least 7,000 Iraqi militiamen are now fighting, they were at Aleppo, which was one of the epicenters of Syrian rebels. Uh, and now inside Iraq, they're going uh, to the border to link up with uh, uh, Syrian government and other uh, Iranian proxy forces on the other side of the border, and, and that could be uh, a problem. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, Washington uh, must plan on the basis uh, that Iran is part of the problem and not likely to be part of a sustainable solution uh, not only in Iraq, but in Syria. Uh, we've seen uh, the role of the Iranian militias, uh, and I, I, I don't think Iran uh, has the same goals inside Iraq. Uh, I think it wants to see 
uh, a weak and divided Iraq in which Iranian in influence is paramount. Uh, third, we, want, we need to minimize friction between the Kurdish uh, and Shiite militias and, and gain the confidence of liberated Sunni Arab civilians. Uh, this is part of a broader challenge of standing up uh, a more inclusive and welcoming political framework by the central government. Uh, fourth, uh, there must be a strong economic dimension to this political outreach to kickstart the local economies, employ uh, local uh, residents wherever possible to uh, rebuild their own neighborhoods. Uh, fifth, in just a very cursory fashion, uh, the idea of a more uh, a regional aut autonomy should be explored uh, for uh, the broader Nineveh government. Uh, it's a diverse region. It's not just uh, Sunni Arabs, uh, but Shiites, Christian, Yazidis, Shabaks, uh, Arab, Kurdish, Turkmen, Assyrian, Ar Armenian populations part of the mosaic we've been talking about uh, in order to uh, ensure that this mosaic can last into the future. Uh, I think the Iraqi government has the primary responsibility, but there's a lot the U.S. government and I think uh, non-governmental NGOs such as uh, uh, the Institute for Peace and the Heritage Foundation. Let right. me just leave it there. Thank you. And if you have a question, if you just raise your hand, I'll recognize you. It's, it's important, I think, to say, too, that this is more than just about the future for the Iraqi people. I mean, if the U.S. strategy in the region and the vital U.S. interest in the region is to assure peace and stability, a stable Iraq is more than just a stable Iraq. It's also key into containing Jordan. Uh, it's key to the stability of, I'm sorry, containing Iran. It's key to the stability of Jordan, uh, key to future stability of the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Uh, it's key to blocking the, the, the destabilizing influence of the Syrian war. Um, it's key to stabilizing the refugee population in the region, which is important not just for the region and for the, the counterterrorism effort in dealing with foreign fighters, but it's also key in terms of stability of Western Europe. It has a rippling effect on, um, the, on Lebanon, the security situation in Lebanon, Israel, and Turkey. So this is, a, this is really a regional problem uh, challenge for the United States. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. So we have a lot at stake here. So uh, yes, sir. So if we could just get a microphone. Great. We just wait for the microphone, state your name and affiliation, ask a quick question. We can get in as many questions as we possibly can in the time we have. Thanks. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey. I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. I follow the account for uh, Iraq account for two decades now. The one theme that emerged throughout the entirety of those two decades is that these people don't want to live together. So I wonder when we get off our imperial hubris and actually give them an opportunity at self-determination, actually allow them to hold a referendum uh, to say whether they want to be chained together for the rest of human history or be allowed to go their own ways. When do we respect that particular human right? Great, thanks. Song, do you want to address that? Uh, very, very quickly. Uh, we do not take a policy position as an organization on, on those matters. As a professional uh, peace builder, I see uh, the path uh, to, uh, to stability, whichever path that takes. Uh, in our conversations uh, in Erbil with the, with the Kurdish leadership and uh, even in Baghdad, uh, I think even in the European capitals, uh, the, the conversation is about uh, that is, I don't think they are um, um, 
those who are outsiders to this, uh, except for the regional uh, countries, they are not against the idea of the independence, but the, the time and the path that it will take. And from the conversations that we have had in, in, in Iraq, uh, dialogue has been chosen as a path to have that conversation between Erbil uh, and, and, and Baghdad, and uh, they committed to the, the, that path to be peaceful. And um, other than that, uh, I have nothing else yeah. to add. So uh, we have a question on my far right, which makes me most comfortable. Hi, my name is Mike Muller. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, you mentioned that ISIS is a resilient enemy. Uh, while we can surely stem the growth of ISIS in the Middle East, how can we stop decentralization and prevent self-radicalization in London and other parts of Europe and at home? Um, great. Uh, Jim, do you have any thoughts? Or Well, I, I would say that... Uh, the, the, so the question was, is, is uh, ISIS is not having just a regional influence, but it's also potentially destabilizing in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Western Europe and other places. So what can we do about that? So. And I think it's important to remember that although ISIS uh, is losing ground in Iraq and Syria, it's expanding elsewhere in the Philippines, uh, in, in Asia, uh, Yemen to a lesser extent. Uh, so this problem uh, may be uh, replicated, replicated elsewhere. Uh, and I think in the long run, this is an ideological struggle. Uh, and this is an Islamist totalitarian uh, threat uh, that will not be militarily defeated. Ultimately, I think it's going to require uh, Sunni uh, theorists to explain to impressionable young Muslims why they are worse off uh, joining with an Islamist totalitarian movement in which they uh, become the, the primary victims. Um, and perhaps uh, uh, the, the experience of the Taliban in Afghanistan and uh, uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, could provide uh, uh, ideological ammunition in that internal struggle. Sure. Now, very quickly uh, on that, I think that you have to see the spectrum of why people join. And in Iraq, I would, uh, and uh, as uh, uh, Jim Brightfully mentioned, ISIS was a symptom. And uh, so what are the, uh, the entry points where ISIS or uh, 2.0, whatever, uh, uh, terrorist organization come in and then tap into those youth. Uh, so in the con I think that varies from one place right. to another. I think the ideology layer is there across, but I think I would argue it's a yes. thinner layer right. than it's usually in the media. Uh, it's mm -hmm. those entries, the revenge violence pushes mm -hmm. them, the, the, the IDPs, uh, that, that are the destabilizing factors, the yeah. entry points. So there's a question on my far left, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. My name is Elise Goss-Alexander with the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Um, the Iraqi central government put out a plan, I believe it was just today, for a 10-year reconstruction plan for Mosul. I was wondering if any of you could speak to that, or if you haven't had a chance to look at it yet, if you could speak to what some of the specific policies that the central government could take for this situation. Anybody? I haven't seen it, but I, I wish they'd put it out like six months ago. But <laughs> so we have a question down here in yeah. the front, or right down here, and then we'll go to the back. Hi, Keith Mines from USIP. Uh, what I've heard this morning, all, starting with the congressman and all the way through, was kind of the centrality of nation building. And I just wondered if, if, it, if it's not an off-limits term, if somebody could just comment on that. Is there really a way? to achieve what we're trying to achieve uh, in the war against terror and in, in this whole range of issues that we face without viable, inclusive nations that can pull together all the, uh, the things that we need. 
Yeah, let me let me address that. You know, from kind of the administration perspective, because you may have not heard this, but we have a president that has this aversion in nation building and yeah. regime change, which I'm actually very sympathetic with. I mean, nation building. First of all, there's actually very few cases of nations building nations. Most nations rebuild themselves, so it's almost an artificial term that doesn't exist in reality. Um, and you know, even if you did want to invest on that scale or with regime change, these are very very costly, expensive. Uh, um, in, uh, adventures with, with um, you know, questionable gains and all kinds of secondary benefits. I think it's wrong to think of Iraq as nation building. I, and, and this is, I think, in part the reason why we're going to get such a successful, a good constructive policy out of this administration in Afghanistan is because people have convinced the president that they're not doing nation building. What they're doing is establishing kind of a, working with the partners on the ground, kind of a prerequisite for security, governance, and uh, and economic activity that essentially allows a nation to kind of, allows a people to kind of take responsibility for themselves. And so I don't think what we're looking for in Iraq, I would qualify as nation building. And, and we can't, I mean, we can't, and we're not gonna do that. But we're gonna do that as enable Iraqis to have a future. And I, I think that's, a, that's about right. So we have another question in the back there. Get you in here. Thank you, uh, thank you, can you hear me? Uh, Todd South, Military Times. Um, the question's for Colonel Kershaw. Uh, the lessons that you and your unit and your, your soldiers learned and, and applying and working with USIP about 10 years ago, where in the military are those things being coordinated? Are in the, in the training and doctrine of, of officers and at what level? Uh, thanks. Uh, you know, the question revolves around the, the lessons that we learned in, in, in South Baghdad and where uh, where they're being applied in uh, the U.S. military. Is Jim in the room or did he, uh, did he escape? The U.S. Army's uh, fellow, he probably escaped this. Uh, currently, the U.S. Institute of Peace has a U.S. Army fellow assigned. He and I both were the victims of a mid-air entanglement if you're familiar with that, over Camp Bullis, Texas. So uh, we met in a previous life, bouncing into each other at about 800 feet above Texas. He has now been posted. I am willing to suspect that that has something to do with the experience of my brigade and the U.S. Institute of Peace. One way in which the Army, of course, addresses this is by the assignment of personnel and in, through the military education system. Jim is just a, a walking uh, victim who I was able to uh, identify today as someone, so the Army has clearly seen the, the value of this organization. I know that the current Chief of Staff of the Army, who I took command of the Commando Brigade from, who Tony served with, Mark Milley, Chief of Staff of the Army, recognizes this, as does the current Division Commander, who when I reached out to him, you know, said he's a big fan. So certainly, as I look back on this with 10 years, advantage of looking back, and, and I will be honest, I did not know what the four letters USIP stood for when I arrived as a Brigade Commander in South Baghdad. The, the Army clearly does now. So with the assignment of personnel, the addressing it in the uh, professional military education system, and then the continuing dialogue between the institution's hard and soft power, if you want to use that, I think the Army, uh, you know, has at least learned uh, a lesson. So we, I, I'm going to get one more question here down front. Let me, let me ask you, Mike, while the microphone's coming down here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what, what do you think the, the, the U.S. military commitment in the post-Mosul Iraq environment would look like? What, what kind of numbers and structure would you see? Uh, that's a good question there, Mr. Careful. <laughs> uh, the United States military is involved. Uh, currently, they've kept about a brigade combat team's worth of uh, soldiers. That's equivalent to our force. Of course, they're spread across a much wider, so the, the boots on the ground uh, potentially is uh, uh, less proportionally. Yeah. But uh, US Army, the U.S. Army operates in formation. Somebody once told me there's three ways to look at the United States Army. There's the Army, 
there's the unit and its organization, and then there's the individual. And so currently the United States commitment is a brigade combat team's worth of soldiers spread throughout northern Iraq under the appropriate general officer leadership. And I think that will remain uh, throughout at least the initial, whenever the victory in Mosul happens, somebody please call me, and I want to make sure I turn on C-SPAN. But uh, we'll remain through that. The question is what it remains, I think, which is what you two are trying to draw us into is to think about where does that, that happen. And, of course, it's also the mixture right. of forces, both. Um, but to do the kind of things you guys are talking about doing that have to be done, should it grow? Should it expand? Should it sustain? Well, I'm, I'm, le I'm less interested in the numbers than I am in the units. The Army is a command-centric organization. One of the reasons that I believe we had success is we were under a unity of command. Um, I, for good or bad for the United States Army and our nation, I was the military authority in South Baghdad. Um, and so all efforts were able to channel through one formation and alike. I worked with special operations forces that came okay. in and out and civil affairs type units as well. But it's the unity of command, the U.S. commitment to m maintain the command structures and troops that those commanders will do an estimate and come up with the numbers that are appropriate to accomplish the nation's mission. Should be a politician, we can't get a straight. <laughs> uh, so this will be our last question, go ahead. Mona Yakubian from the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, my question goes back to this question of lessons learned and it's for Colonel, Colonel Kershaw. Um, the context differs significantly between Iraq and Syria, but I'm wondering if, if certainly there's the U.S. footprint is not nearly the same, et cetera. But I'm wondering if there are some important lessons learned from Mahmoudia that might be applicable to what we might be thinking and facing in Syria. Yes, ma'am. And, th and thanks for that question, because that's the one thing I wanted to hopefully close with before I was asked. Because I've heard it said a number of times here. And I'll, the three lessons that, as I've had a chance to ponder, uh, our experience in South Baghdad with, with what this, this uh, conference is supposed to address is one, and uh, is it Dr. Phillips or sir? Uh, the whole, his comment about a post-liberation political framework. And uh, uh, most of the soldiers who went over to South Baghdad in 2006 were prepared to accept that this was an insurgency. Now, there's a political dynamic to that. The frustration we experienced in trying to determine what was the existing Iraqi political framework is really, that is the cause of us looking for the U.S. Institute of Peace because we could find... Only and, and they were out there in, in various different levels, but the political framework of South Baghdad, from our perspective, I want to say it didn't exist, but it was hard as heck to find. So the idea that we walked into something like that and that we're contemplating walking in, sort of that, that point, I mean, I wrote it down in capital letters. What is the post-liberation political framework? That's absolutely essential. Uh, two, the one I mentioned and, and why we went to the U.S. Institute of Peace. In the military, we've been accused of being, uh, I got it, uh, every problem's a nail, we're all hammers, hard, soft power debate. I'm familiar with it. But most of us recognize we're taught in the military combined arms, employing all forces. I've served in both special operations forces and conventional units. I was a, essentially a mechanized company tank commander in Desert Storm, and I was a paratrooper and a ranger in other conflicts. There's no, the reason the Army maintains all these is what we, this idea of combined arms. And it's not any one arm that delivers. It's the same with this kind of power. Again, this, another thing that led us to the U.S. Institute of Peace, we were looking for these elements of soft power and, and how to employ them. And then the last thing, and I'll close with this, uh, 
you have to maintain you have to maintain an opportunistic attitude about what you're doing. Kind of goes back to what you were saying, sir. I've heard it echoed here. We used to have a saying. It's a motto of the French paratroopers. If it's impossible, um, if it's possible, it's been done. If it's impossible, uh, we're the guys they're going to call to do it. Uh, I apologize for the gender. Uh, Girls can do it too. Don't take that the wrong way. Uh, But uh, you you have to maintain an opportunistic attitude when you're in these kind of very difficult problem-solving situations. Uh, Once you begin to lose that, once you begin to this, I think it was your kind of what you were trying to steer us away from, um, once you you can be your own recipe for disaster. We do it to ourselves in the military. We do it in the interagency sometimes. We do it in committee-type meetings. You have to maintain an opportunistic attitude to look for the opportunities. And sometimes, as we like to say, you know, opportunity is like a gun laying in the street. It's there for the guy who picks it up and uses it. Thank you. So we've had a really nice combination of hammers, saws, screwdrivers, and wrenches. So please join me in thanking all our participants, and thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org backslash podcast.